This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 63 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this very special episode, which is coming to you from the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side, I am joined by a fast-rising star of stage and screen, Leslie Odom Jr. The 34-year-old can currently be seen on Broadway as Aaron Burr in Hamilton. That is, if you have about $1,200 to spare or some major connections. Hamilton, of course, is the biggest Broadway phenomenon in memory, a Pulitzer and Grammy-winning show that's been attended by everyone from President Obama to Rosie O'Donnell 12 times and has now been nominated for a record 16 Tony nominations, including Best Musical, for which it's a slam dunk to win, and Best Actor in a Play, for which Odom is competing against his co-star and the man who wrote the show's music and book, Lin-Manuel Miranda. What's all the commotion about? Well, through colorblind casting and a hip-hop soundtrack that's as cool as anything you'll hear on the radio, Hamilton recounts the story of one of America's founding fathers and the man who infamously shot him in a way that puts history classes to shame. Odom's personal journey has been no less remarkable. He emerged from inner-city Philadelphia at the age of 17 and hit the Broadway stage running as a replacement in Rent, the Hamilton of its day, in 1998. He then went back to finish high school and head off to college, after which he returned to Broadway in Leap of Faith, a short-lived show in 2012. He spent a number of years on TV shows for which he had no real passion but which helped to pay the bills before attending an early reading of the show that would become Hamilton and then participating in some informal workshops, after which he made sure he was not going to miss his shot. The show first exploded at the Public Theater off-Broadway last year, before heading to Broadway and blowing up even further this year. Over the course of our conversation, Odom talks about how he managed to get out of a seven-year commitment to do a network TV show in order to remain a part of Hamilton, why he and his castmates who helped to develop the show fought for and won a rare profit-sharing deal after it became a towering success, how he hopes Hamilton will impact the diversity of other shows in the years to come, and much, much more. It remains to be seen how long Odom will remain with Hamilton, but in the meantime, he's taking on other projects as well. For instance, on June 10th, he'll release a new self-titled album, and there has been great anticipation for that. So as an outro to this episode, we will leave you with a single from that called Autumn Leaves. But in the meantime, let's go to our conversation. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Honestly, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it, and great to see you again. Um, to begin with, we always like to ask about just the early years. So where were you born and raised, and, and what did or do your folks uh, do for a living? Mm, I was born in New York, raised in Philadelphia. My dad, my whole life, was a salesman. Um, he sold many things, but uh, he was always a salesman. Really gregarious guy, fun guy, great storyteller. Um, he was like, you know, of his friends. His friends were all a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> but he was uh, the funny one. And my mom always worked with the aged. She always had a heart for the aged. So it was always nursing homes. Um, yeah, she was either, either working in recreation or rehabilitation in nursing homes. Now, was theater in terms of attending or doing a big part of your life as a kid? No way. Not at all? Mm-mm. So what was the closest thing to it? I, I've read that church was sort of a big yeah. thing for you. you. Was it just the performance element of it? Yeah, sort of. Um, I mean, church is where I started singing. Music was, a, music was a part of my life from early, early. What kind of music were you into? Um, soul music okay. and uh, pop music. I was into pop music, but my, my parents were into soul and yeah. R&B. And so we just, we grew up with the best music because we grew up with their music. Yeah. So that was like, you know, the music from the 70s, right. you know, Marvin Gaye and, um, you know, the Spinners, the OJs, you know, just the best music around sure. Motown. Because um, we never flew anywhere. It was always uh, car trips. <laughs> Long. <laughs> to New York or to... Oh my God, to, to Canada. Oh really? To, yeah, okay. the family vacations yeah, yeah. was always driving. So it was music the whole way. And um, yeah, so I grew up with music first and then theater just kind of, um, yeah, like a, there's always a, a, a sort of a, a theater element in church, you know, whether it's Christmas pageants or Easter pageants and stuff like that. And so they would often, you know, I'd often be cast as the, you know, sort of the most dramatic role in whatever production we were doing in that way. But theater came much, much later, teenage years. So what was it, I believe something specific happened when you were 13 that really yeah. sort of made you fall in love with it? I saw, uh, you know, Rent was the <laughs> the Hamilton, if you will, yeah. of its time. I mean, before, I really think that Rent would have been even, it would have looked even closer, the success of that show to, to our show, if social media was around yeah, back yeah, then. Interesting. I think that's a really big difference between that show and this show. But back then, the only way you could 
hear about something was to read about it and they got a lot of press but they also had tv looks you know so there was like a 2020 or a dateline one of those two things on a friday night um and i caught you know just the 11 12 minute story on this show and it just it just made me curious it just seemed like you just wanted to I wanted that to be my life I wanted those to be my friends I wanted you know I didn't want to pay rent right you know uh, and so from there yeah I went and I listened to the music at the HMV when there were still record stores I stood up at one of the listening stations and listened to the whole show top to bottom and then I spent twenty dollars on the double cast album which was a lot of money sure um, and I just became obsessed with the thing. And so even then, it wasn't that I, it wasn't that that made me think, oh, I want to do Broadway shows. It was, no, I want to do that show. That was, that was as far as I could see. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't know people that were on TV. I didn't, so those things kind of, I, I didn't dream of that. What I dreamt of, what I, I kind of thought, I've said this before, but I, imagined that I would audition for about 10 years, I would book rent when I was about 30, and then I would do rent until I was about 40, and then you retire. <laughs> right, right. I really couldn't see <laughs> that anything That was the beyond. picture. Um, now, before we talk about how, on a faster timetable than that, rent came back in the picture, I just have to ask you about the thing that, that I had read about when you were 13 was there was sort of a, a scholarship that really enabled you to take this idea and sort of put it into practice a little bit and see what you could do yeah. as a performer yourself. What was, so what was the Freedom Theater and how did you end up there? Yeah, there was an oratorical competition. Uh, the, the woman who, there were several people obviously that made a huge difference in, my, difference in my life besides my parents at that time. And there was a woman, Mrs. Frances Turner, who's passed away. She was my, she was my fifth grade US history teacher and she got me involved in something called the African-American Oratorical Competition, where at 10 years old, I, we would, you would write a speech and you would deliver it in front of a room full of adults. And there was always a prize. There was um, either a savings bond or some sort of prize attached to it. So I didn't win the first year, but I, <laughs> there, it was a very small margin that separated me from the first place winner. I came in second place. And it was just the fact that that young woman had memorized her speech is what I had heard. Right. So I said, if that's it, <laughs> I could have, I knew my speech. I just right. ended up holding it right. for, you know, cause they were afraid for me. So I memorized it and I won every year after that. <laughs> so because I won so many times, they started to get creative about what kind of prize to give me. So we, we have to stop giving this kid the same thing every year. Right. So when I was 13, eighth grade, they gave me a scholarship to the Freedom Theater, which was, um, one of the oldest African-American repertory theaters in the company, in the country, excuse me. And um, there I got in my first acting classes, my first movement classes, and I was around other kids who were performers who had been training for their whole lives. And it um, just changed the trajectory of my life. And it wasn't, the thing that I love about Freedom Theater is not, not all of those people who trained at Freedom Theater ended up being actors, but there you learn confidence and you learn how to stand up and speak in a loud voice and say your name clearly so that it can be understood. And those are life lessons that have um, stayed with me all the days of my life since sure. then. So now you are 
17, you're in high school, you're going along and you come across rent again. How did this, how did this time, uh, how, how this time did it cross yeah. your radar? Well, they were in Philadelphia at the Merriam Theater. The tour was coming through and, you know, I knew that was going to be the only way for me to see it. And so I must have done the rush, you know, because I don't know where the money came from, but I must have done the rush with a friend of mine and we saw the show. And then back then they would audition people in all the towns they were in. And so I went to the audition um, with no real expectation to book the show. That was not why, you, why I went. I went because I thought they should meet me um, because it was gonna take 10 years. Right. And so we sh I should meet them now to get the process started so that you know we can, <laughs> we can get the process right, started. Right. And then over the course of about three months, I was back and forth to New York. I was getting callbacks, and my parents would drive me back and forth. And somewhere along the way, I realized, man, I could really get this. I could get this a lot sooner than I expected. And no one was more surprised than me. Probably three or four months after I auditioned for the show, I was 16 when I auditioned because it was the, it was the last week of school of my junior year that I started auditioning. And so now we're in the summer, and I'm going back and forth to auditions. And there's something in... Philadelphia called Governor's School, which is this thing um, where that summer between your junior and your senior year, you can go to, I think it's Harrisburg, somewhere in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. You go, you go away and you study. You know, it's a free, it's a free thing, a free program, and you go and you study the arts. And I turned down Governor's School because I was like, I was, I'm getting these callbacks for rent, so I don't want to miss one. Right. So yeah, so about two weeks before school started, at the end of August, um, I turned 17, August 6th, I think, you know, around August 21st, 22nd, I got the call to come to New York, and my life was never the same. I just have to ask you to share how you responded to that call, because <laughs> I think it's so, I don't know, I don't want to sound patronizing when I say cute, but it was, it's a cool, you know, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a marker of where you were then versus where you are now. Can you share what your response was? I could, I mean, you know, so maybe two years before I had my first professional job, and that's in, you know, heavy italics. You know, at the Freedom Theater, I got hired to be an intern in the Christmas production of Black Nativity, and they were going to pay me $75 a week, which was a lot of money, which I was, like, so happy yeah. to make that. And then the <laughs> next year I got a raise to $125 a week. week yeah. This is, I mean, you know, this is at 15, 14, right, 15 years right, old. Right. You don't need more money than right, that. Right. So when Rent called and they told me I was going to be making $1,260 a week, to be in rent at 17 i would have paid them i would have happily paid them <laughs> my 125 dollars right. a week to be a part of that show <laughs> so it was i couldn't believe how much money i was going to make i couldn't believe that they were going to pay for me to get there because it you know my my parents had driven me up for every callback that we'd had and so the fact that they were offering me a train ticket now felt way too extravagant. I told them, please keep the train ticket. My parents will drive me. You know, I, I just didn't want You didn't them. want them to spend the money. No, I didn't want them to spend the, And I didn't, I didn't want to be a problem. I didn't want right. to be a, uh, in any way. I didn't want them to, you know, well, this kid's costing us a lot right. of money now. Now he wants a train ticket too, like, you know, on second thought. Right. So I, um, yeah, I just, I wanted to, I wanted it to be, before they realized that there was a mistake that they were calling right. me, I wanted just to be in New York. 
as fast as I could. So you do start with the show. My understanding was it, it was about three months that you were part of it. Is that mm-hmm. right? And so what was it like, though? Because obviously now with Hamilton, which we're going to come to, you are originating a part that many others are going to revive over the over the years into the future. But here you were stepping into a show that was already in place. And I wonder what that experience is like. I mean, when you hear about people doing it on TV series and things, they say it's 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 sort of can be tough because everybody else already knows each other and they have their dynamic and yeah. how they work together. What was it like for you with Rent? Yeah, that was the toughest part because I had come from the community theater. I'd come like right from school plays in the church basement to Broadway. Um, and you're dealing with vets. You're dealing with people who don't, you know, I couldn't believe that we didn't sort of go out to dinner every night and, you know, go to breakfast every morning together. I, it took me a second to sort of wrap my head around the professional theater, but showbiz, it was the big time, kid, you know, catch up. <laughs> so it was, it's all good, but that was emotionally, there was some sort of hard emotional lessons that happened and there was, there was some mature maturation that had to happen quickly as far as the business of it. But um, I never ever got tired of doing that show ever ever putting that microphone on putting my costume on i was in rent <laughs> and you are now forever thereafter living in new york was that the end no of, you went back i went back to school yeah i went back and i finished my senior year of high school and i went to college um which was great my parents were insistent on that on that we still finished college and did that whole thing and i'm glad i did because, because yeah, there's, there's no rush, in my opinion, to, to get out and be worried about rent and literal rent, Little rent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> paying bills right. and that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, to take that time to go away and, and devote it to your study and to make friends and give yourself the freedom at that time in your life is really important. Why did you choose Carnegie Mellon University? I met a guy, uh, Michael McElroy, when I was in Rent, who's a Broadway star, Tony-nominated star. And um, I went to Carnegie Mellon because Michael went to Carnegie Mellon, and I was going to be Michael McElroy. That was it. I mean, he had done, at that time, five or six Broadway shows, and I revered him. And so I was going to go to the finishing school he went to, mm-hmm. and I was going to learn what he went, what he learned. I was there for about two seconds before I realized, oh, I'm never going to be Michael McElroy. <laughs> but they were offering me the chance uh, to, to achieve something possibly even better, which was to be a better version of myself. And that's what I learned over four years at Carnegie. You had some great classmates too, right? Oh, yeah. Who was it? Um, Josh Gad, Josh Groban, Katie Mixon. Uh, who else would you guys know? I mean, I, I'm fans of them all. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. Only a, there's only a couple names that you would know. In, so when I was a freshman, the senior class was Joe Maganello, Matt Bomer, um, Cody DePablo. I mean, wow. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. So you finish college. How does Broadway reenter the picture? Because there was no guarantee that it, that it would or that it would happen so quickly, but it actually did fairly quickly, right? Yeah, uh, sort of. I mean, Broadway sort of doesn't re-enter the picture. I, so from college, I go out to L.A. and I'm doing a bunch of TV that nobody's mm-hmm. watching. But it's, you know, it's, I'm doing TV. Who cares? Right. Again, even that. It was just such a surprise right. that, that those doors were open to me. Um, and then 
it was almost 10 years after school. Smash brought me back. So that's sort of how to, how the theater thing re-entered my life. I'd been doing a little bit of theater out in L.A., but Smash is this, so theater's going to have its its day in the sun on television, and I, I had a small part on that show, and I moved back to New York to do that. And then a show that I'd done out in L.A., I, d- I did a show called Leap of Faith mm-hmm. in Los Angeles with uh, Brooke Shields and Raul Esparza was coming to Broadway, so I, I was able to do that. We ran 23 whole shows on Broadway. Do you do you see did you see do you see why that was short-lived? Mm. Like you you agree with or was it one of these where it's just like uh it doesn't seem right still? I asked I asked Michael Riedel this one time. We were at a wedding together and I asked him, I thought that that show in my opinion, I thought that it got more hate than it deserved I and mean, people hated that show. It had a fair amount of people that liked it, but right. the reviews were just I mean, scathing. And he said to me, look, what are we going to debate? Whether something was bad or really bad? And you agree the, with that? Do you? Well, I, he taught me something yeah. then. Even Michael Riedel taught me. Yeah. He said, <laughs> basically, it wasn't good enough. Right. So whether it was bad or terrible or the worst, right. it wasn't good enough. And, and, and you know, I, I also learned in, in those situations, you, you can never blame an audience. You never blame people for not finding your thing or not liking your thing if it's not connecting with people it's not connecting with them and you move on and you do something else what's changed in you as a performer between then and now i've read that you said quote it took me a long time to let the training go what do you what do you mean by that Mm. there was some some somewhere out in la uh this happened and this happened before hamilton this is yeah this is the story so i (laughs) i've said this before too that there's a market for safe and bland. And I was firmly in that market, <laughs> you know, because I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a trust fund. I didn't have, you know, parents that could swoop in and, and save me and pay my bills if I couldn't pay them. And so I got some great training at Carnegie. I knew exactly how to execute and I knew how to work. And so I worked immediately when I got to Los Angeles because I, was, I, I knew how to do that. But it was very safe, and it was paint by the numbers, and it, I, I, couldn't, I didn't believe that I could afford to take risks. And school, if, if Carnegie did one thing, this is the only thing that I fault them for, because it was wonderful, you know. But that grading system is tricky because I, I think that a catch, an education like that should be pass-fail because... Um, they're training you to try to be perfect. And so you don't get rewarded for failure. You don't get rewarded for risk. And that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because I, I graduated with honors after four years, and I, I hadn't taken one risk in four years. You just knew what they were looking for. Yeah. yeah. And I got really good at parroting back right. and de- delivering what they were interested right. in. I'll tell you, on stage at Hamilton, I couldn't give a damn. Listen, I want the audience to, to come. I want you guys to have a wonderful experience, but um, I'm there first to do something dangerous and something human and to risk everything that I can that night. And I hope you like that. And if you don't, that's okay too. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah, it was somewhere around 30 that I just got bored. That I read this really great quote a couple days ago that no revolution starts, no personal revolution starts 
until someone gets tired of their own bullshit. <laughs> it's, so, it's something like that. But That's good. It's, yeah. it's, you know, you get tired of your own garbage mm-hmm. and it forces you into a new place. So what was the low point of that drier period or not drier period because yeah. you were working, but not necessarily being not feeling satisfied? I is it true that there was one really demoralizing thing where a pilot didn't get picked up? Yeah. And, and what was your outlook at that point? Yeah, I got this. I got because out in L.A., you know, you're trying to get the thing. You're rolling the dice. You're trying to get the thing. And I and I got the thing. I got a lead on a pilot, this ABC, ABC show, great big old show, had a great time shooting it. And then it didn't get picked up. And I thought, well, that's OK, because I've now I've, I've crossed over into this new sort of echelon of actors and my phone will ring. Somebody else will, is going to call, call and put me on something. And they didn't. And the phone completely didn't ring. And I was about to turn 30 and I just didn't, I was, I was done. I did not understand because that roller coaster, it's the highest of highs and then nothing, I mean nothing. And so it's like, okay, great, I'm done. I, because I, there's nothing else I have to prove to myself. I, I, I've shown myself that I can book the thing. And so great, I'm gonna go do something else because what I want now is to know that I'm gonna pay my bills every week. What I want now, because I, I, how do you mature? How do you grow up? How do you ever get a mortgage? You know, get, to have the courage to, to take on the responsibility of a mortgage if you don't know if your phone's gonna stop ringing. And so I met with a mentor of mine, Stuart Robinson. He gave me the best, of, best advice I've ever gotten in my whole life. He said, okay, so you wanna quit, great. If you wanna quit, I'll help you. We'll come up with the options, the things that you can do to quit. He said, but I'd love to see you try before you quit. And I looked at him like he was nuts. It's like, I just booked the thing. What do you mean? I'm not trying. He said, no, I think you're waiting for your phone to ring. I think when your phone rings, you show up and you have great auditions. But what did you do today? What did you do when you woke up today? Your phone didn't ring. Did you do anything yourself? Did you send an email? Did you make a phone call? Did you start writing? Did you start? And that was the key. I was missing half of it. <laughs> and how do you how did thing how did you change your behavior after that? First thing I did was I got in class. I um, I took Stuart, Stuart gave me the opportunity to take his uh, acting class. I hadn't been in a class in a decade, and he said you can come to look. I said I know you work. You can come to my advanced class and and jump in with those students. So I said look, you're giving me something. You're offering. Me, I'm, I'm going to come to the beginning class the rudiments. I want to learn like dribbling and passing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like I want to go back to the basics. And the first class, I I was never the same. I didn't, it was a six week course. I took one class. I didn't get to finish the six weeks because I started working immediately. Wow. And you were, you were uh, happier with the kind of work you were doing. Oh my God. It changed everything. So before we talk about your personal involvement with Hamilton, let me, let me ask you this. Um, how would you explain to someone who has maybe been living under a rock and hasn't seen or even heard about it yeah. what it is? Why is this show getting so much attention? Well, I wouldn't even attempt to describe why it's getting so much attention, but I, what I would tell people, what I was telling people for the years that I was involved in it and nobody had seen it, right. was that it tells the story of the founding fathers with all actors of color, African-American and Latin American descent, um, using hip hop music as the vernacular. And I said, in this case, I know it sounds weird, but in this case, the genius is in the incongruence. 
and you just hope that people trust you, you know. But um, I think what I think people are responding to so much. They're responding to so much, and it's it would be complete hubris for me to for any of us to sit in front of a microphone or a TV camera and say, oh, this is why Hamilton is Hamilton. You know, this is why it's because because then you get into, well, if you if you know exactly why, well, then do it again. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Give me five more of them. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, that that's a that's a fool's errand. So there's a there's a, a large part of this that that none of us knows why. Right. None of us has control over why it's connecting with people the way it is. But I know that Lynn gave us a masterpiece in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, I think he gave us a, just a really um, perfect piece of material. And it was developed in the most loving, creative, wonderful space, working environment I've ever been in. Well, let's, let's do the chrono- chronology yeah. here. With the first time you heard anything about it, was this, this was the Vassar yeah. workshop? What, how did, what was this? And did you know Lynn already? I knew Lynn the way you know people in this business, kind of from parties and stuff like that. You you know, hey baby, how you doing? Right. Kind of thing, kiss on the <laughs> cheek. And um, so I I sent him a Twitter, you know, a message on Twitter, like, hey, I hear you're doing this thing, this reading. I was up, my wife was up there doing a show up at Vassar as well, developing a new piece. And so I said, I'm gonna be up there. I'd love to come see it. And you couldn't even get a ticket then. So because <laughs> he, he was already he'd already done in the Heights. Yeah. OK. And it was it was a very they were doing two performances and the, the theater was was not even 99 seats. It wow. was like a 75 little black wow. box theater. But you're in Vassar. You know, it's like who's going to be up here? Well, everyone's going to be up here <laughs> because Lynn is doing this thing. Right. So I managed to score two tickets in the last role of this thing with me and my mother in law. And it was just the freshest most exciting theater I had ever seen at a music stand. I've never seen anything like it. Um, was it just the first act at that point? Yep. But even mm-hmm. then you could still see the the, the potential and yeah. The, yeah. It was the music, it was the music, it was the rhythms. Lynn had, he had cracked, everybody wants to make musical theater work with this kind of music, with our music. Everybody wants musical theater to be relevant again, for it to sound like the radio again. We all want that. Mm-hmm. It's really fucking hard to do. <laughs> right. right. It's really hard to do right. because pop music, you know, the things that we like on the radio, that we love on the radio, are death in the theater. Because pop music is, de- a pop song is designed to usher you into a place is to get you into a a mood and keep you there for three minutes. That is death in the theater. Because if you you sing a line and then a minute later you sing that same line, I sit back in my chair. I'm no longer invested. You know, that, think of any of the great pop songs that you know. Most of them begin and end in the same place. You love that place. You know, and that's why you put that on when you want to feel that. But theater has to be constantly revealing itself. It has to be new every single moment because we have to stay on the edge of our seat until you have to pick us up and you you can't let us down until Mm -hmm. that curtain comes down. And so Lynn had figured out how to make pop music work in the theater. So you come away from this, you're very impressed, 
now you, you're saying to yourself, how do I get involved with this? No way. No way? <clears throat> like most people that see Hamilton, you're just trying to wrap your mind around what you saw. Right. So you, you're not, I was in no way jumping to like, hey, I'm going to, you know, Mac on that role. <laughs> like I'm, I'm about to try to get in that. No, it was just, I, I just was going to be the first rabid fan of this thing. I sent him a message and I meant it like, hey, whenever you're doing this thing, I want to come see it. Let me know. And I will be there with a cheering section mm -hmm. just to support what you guys are doing to throw you love. And a couple months later, they called to invite me to play Aaron Burr, and I was like, oh, shit. This is going to be in a workshop. Yeah. And do you have any idea to this day why he thought of you for Aaron Burr as opposed to something else? I don't. I think I had been, they, you know, him and Tommy had been throwing my name around as somebody who could possibly do it. This is Thomas Kale, the director. That's right. Yep. Brilliant Tommy Kale. And what I had also learned, you know, out there in the wilderness, out there in L.A., was that my experience had taught me that I had an opportunity to have an opportunity in this case. And so preparation was everything. What I realized was that I was going to, I was at that point, they asked me to be invited in a room for five days, and it was my job to make them never want to see anybody else do this part again mm -hmm. in five days. That was the moment. And that's just that's all I can say about that you just you you don't let something like that slip through your fingers so what that means is you learn all the songs yep. you do some history research of your own yep. and you come in there kind of ready to go oh yeah you're in that room um and you're you're in that room doing all the stuff that we just talked about all of the scariest shit you have to do something extraordinary you have to be open to the extraordinary you have to be playful you have to um, you have to assimilate immediately. You know, when they give you, because those guys are the smartest guys in, in any room. The <laughs> characters, are, you mean? I'm talking about Lynn, oh, Tommy, Lynn himself, and, yeah, right. and Lack. <laughs> okay. So those guys, right. the way they, they work quickly. Yeah. And so when they give you a note, when they give you a change, you, you take it immediately. Right. You can't slow them down. You cannot slow those guys down because they, you got to keep up. Right. And so, yeah, so it was just, it was five days of um, proving that you are worthy of being in that room. Five days because they're just doing, their, that's how many, that's the, the period during which they're workshopping it. Right. And when, you're, when people say workshopping it, that's not doing it in front of an audience, it's just developing the material as a group. Exactly, and that at the end of every one of those weeks, we did. Now we did that over a couple years, okay. a year and a half, two years. And at the end of every single one of those, they're going to invite a small group of producers and people that are attached to the show in some way or another. And um, yeah, again, my experience had taught me that you kill it at every single one of those things. <laughs> there is no, there is no like, oh well, this is just for this is just a casual one. Right. No, no fucking way. Yeah, yeah, and. Every single time you're done, you're letting them know, I did not want my intentions, I did not want the way that I felt about the piece to be a secret. Right. I did not want them to wonder how I felt about it. So are you texting them? Absolutely. <laughs> you're texting them, you're letting them right. know. No no pressure. Right. I understand that you guys might want to, you might want to eventually see somebody else play the role that is your right, but I want you to know that I love this project and I will, I will always bring everything that I have to it. And that, you know, you make no secret about that stuff. So 
in the meantime, though, there's still no guarantee that no way. you've got the part. And so you have to go on with your life and you get the NBC TV show State of Affairs, right? right. Now, when you sign a contract for a network TV show, you're basically signing your life away for seven years, right? Yep. So was that a bittersweet thing for you to do, knowing that there was still this possibility of Hamilton in some form coming to fruition, but you you have to take the sure thing, right? Well, it was a little, it was a little more nuanced than that. I would have never gambled my future with Hamilton for a TV show, ever, no matter what. What happened was State of Affairs shot in New York. The pilot shot in New York. So I said, now this will be a little tricky logistically, but I'll work that out because I know we were gonna be off-Broadway making not a whole lot of money. I mean, I got, you know, after taxes and agents and managers fees off-Broadway, you might walk away with $500 a week. And this is in New York. And this was, but was there even a guarantee that you were gonna be off-Broadway? Yes. So you knew at that point, but yes. you thought you could juggle the two. Right. Okay. At that time, I knew off-Broadway was happening, but yeah. I knew that I also couldn't support my family on $500, on 500 a week. sure. So I said, okay, great. I got this TV show. I'll do the TV show uptown in New York, and I'll do the, I'll work Hamilton out. I'm, I know I'm going to make these two things work, and this is what I need mm -hmm. to have happen. Then State of Affairs moves production to L.A. And now I have a contract. I have... There, there, there is no lawyering up. There is no, you know, there's no finagling out of a contract like that. That is, if they had decided to be, to stand on that, on that agreement, I would, I would not be in Hamilton right. right now. So it took us about, it was agonizing. It was about two months of like, what are we going to do? What should we do? Because even the off-Broadway run of Hamilton did not guarantee a Broadway run that was not a part of it. It was it was all risk. But I'd learned what I'd learned. It's all about risk. Mm -hmm. So you go back and forth. I I decided one week, okay, I'm gonna do the T V show. I you know, I, I it's my responsibility. I, there's a there's a lot of my family that's depends on me financially and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it's and I'm comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. I have to do the T V show. I can't do that. Got to do the TV show, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, cold sweat. Okay, I got to figure out how to get out of the contract to do Hamilton. How do you get out of this contract? Nobody knew how to get out of it. So it took us a couple months to even figure out, to make the decision, okay, I need to get out of this TV show, and then how do we get out? And you know how sometimes when you're troubleshooting, I love this analogy, when you call about your Mac or you call about your, the cable company and you're like, it's not working, they're like, okay, is it on? Is it plugged in? Right. You start with the simplest things right. first. So we're, we're coming up with all the complicated ways. And it took us about two months to ask ourselves, is it on? Meaning, we just ask. What if we just asked? And the great news here was that NBC happened to be run by probably the biggest Broadway geek in, yeah. in, in, uh, in, in showbiz, yeah. right? Yeah. So we started with Bob. We started with Bob Greenblatt, who was a friend of mine from Smash. and. Right. You know, I had a wonderful relationship with Bob, a wonderful friendship with Bob, and I and I wrote him. I started with, there were going to be more people that I had to ask, but I knew if Bob said no, yeah, you're done. then. So let me ask him first. We asked, and he poured my heart out in an email, and he responded the next day. And he was like, yeah, sure. Wow. I'm not going to stand in your way. You know, and I think they also respected the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't like, hey, will you let me out of this TV show to get on another TV show? Right. I was like, hey, will you let me out of this TV show to go make $500 a week right. at the public theater to do this thing that I love? They're like, right. you're a lunatic. Right. Sure. <laughs> so Bob let me out, and then to her credit, Catherine let me out. 
and Joe Carnahan let me out. Those were the three people that, that I needed to, to say yes, and they all said yes. So now life is going on at the public theater, and, and pretty quickly it's, it builds huge momentum, right? This is a, quickly became a phenomenon there. I think it was extended three times yeah. at the public. Uh, what was the first sign for you that this was not only big, but like of a size that people hadn't seen before? Oh, um, when, when, when the people that you respect, the artists that you respect are coming down there and you're seeing them after the show and you're talking to them, right? And, you know, there's just no reason for them to lie to you in that kind of place. They can leave right after the show. They cannot come at all. They, I mean, these are people that are coming back and trying to tell you as much truth as they can. And so you try to believe them. But the good news with this show was I believed in it first. So it was just a confirmation of the way I already felt. We were the reason why, one of the reasons why the show looks the way it does is because we are committed to it in that we believe in this thing. And so them saying what the, you know, Busta Rhymes coming back and spending (laughs) 45 minutes with us backstage after he saw the show and just going around the circle and giving love and dap to everybody in that circle is a confirmation of what we already thought. Right. We already believed it. So so the the move to Broadway started to be pretty inevitable, right? But I guess yeah. Lynn made the decision, we're not going to rush it just to... You guys could have cleaned up at the Tonys last year, but you decided develop it a little more and then come and that was hard ultimately the right decision but that was difficult because we were we were starving down there you know and that and that you know all of us had made the commitment to this work and we were going to be on whatever track they wanted it to be on but you know you imagine that so they made the decision so instead of bringing us uptown and giving us a livable wage yeah they made the decision to sort of keep us downtown for two or three more months. It I don't was think hard. most people would believe that it was only five. You got, you know, the whole world's talking about this, and you guys are making five hundred dollars a week. Oh yeah, wow. So and 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 you're like, you're basically the the co-star of it. Yeah. And so I don't even want to know what like <laughs> the, the lower end people were making. That. All the same. Everybody. The public. That's Everybody how it works. The same okay. Amount. Yeah. So. Yeah. You talk, not to harp on the subject of money, but another interesting thing that came up when you guys did come to Broadway, I believe it was at that point, was this kind of, I think, trailblazing thing, right? Maybe unprecedented mm. of, of profit sharing. Mm. And my understanding is it's a, it was a, not an easy conversation, but it was an, important for everyone, right? Because now this thing, once it hit Broadway, it was it was not it's it's not stopped growing um, and become as we've said, like a, a, of sort of an unprecedented degree, a, a phenomenon. So what was, what was that conversation? That was a really difficult eight or nine month conversation that we had. To everyone's credit, to the producer's credit, to the creative team's credit, nobody stopped coming to the table. Mm-hmm. So I think that that speaks volumes about who these people are. Now it took us, it took us that long to to make an agreement at that table that we could all live with. But every time we raised a concern, a very serious concern, with as much, with as much respect and love as we could, they, they showed up at our meetings and they talked to us, yeah. Who's across the table, it's the producers? Yeah, the, yeah. who's across the table is Jeffrey Seller, our lead uh-huh. producer, uh, Jill Furman, Sandy Jacobs, and you know, who's also, uh, the entire cast and 
you can't take Lynn and Tommy and Andy and Lacker at that table as well. On, now, I guess for for those guys, I'm curious: are they sort of they're sort of in the middle, or or is the cast negotiating with them? Well, I don't want to speak for them, right. but um, what I will say is that the way Broadway is set up right now, and I have I have I have no problem with who's at the table sharing in profits. Okay, the writer shares in profits, the director shares in profits, the director, all, all of those people are sharing in it. The people that are not, it's not a given who shares in that profit is the actors. And that is the part that we had a problem with. So we, we did, we had to come to the table with everyone who's sharing those right. profits and we had to say, will you let us in? And then we had to come back and ask us again, right. ask them again. Right. Um, but we believe in it. And um, the show is a phenomenon that doesn't have nothing to do with us, in right, our opinion. Right. You know, the business, again, we talked about social media. The business has changed in such a, to, to a, in large part due to social media. So it's not only what we're doing on stage, but we are, you know, we're signing autographs, oh, we're yeah. taking pictures, we are, you know, continuing to connect with fans and get the message out about the show on our social media accounts. We are... You know, and this is all in addition to the performances that we help develop that also live on forever and right, ever. Right, right. You set the bar. So we, yeah. we at The Hollywood Reporter, I don't know if you saw this, we did a big kind of uh, uh, study just to see, we call it the Hamilton economy, where if you look at all the stores and restaurants and things, even just around your theater, have been have been elevated by the, being in your presence so uh did it's see that yeah you did see that you guys did a, a story on i think it was called who's getting rich off hamilton you so. guys did that and vulture did right. it and those things those things mm. helped believe it or not i don't know if you intended them to but they helped because they helped us lay out a case right. everyone a, else is getting rich right helped us lay out a case and and just and for the record i want to say you know you talk about getting rich you know, listen, when these things fail, and most Broadway shows fail, mm -hmm. I was in one that lasted for 23 shows, right. but when they don't fail, right. we want to be at the table. But the cast of Book of Mormon, I have friends that were a part of the development of that. Roy O'Malley, who's playing our king now, you know, these, these guys share 1%, just so your, your listeners are yeah, clear, yeah. we're talking about 1% yeah. split Among everybody. Yeah. <laughs> amongst yeah. everyone. Yeah. So we're not trying to fight for, there's nothing crazy. Is that, what the, is that the proportion that is also applicable to Hamilton? I'm not at liberty to okay. discuss okay. what exactly okay. we got. Um, I will say we didn't get everything that we got, but I'm very happy with what we got because what we had was nothing. You mean you didn't get everything you wanted? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we, we didn't get everything that we wanted yeah, ultimately, sure. but this is something that we were coming to, to the table to negotiate after the fact, and I think we got something respectable. Sure. I think we got something. We, we got something. Yeah, you can live with it. You're we right. can live with yeah. it. But though the, the Book of Mormon cast, you know, that's a, a phenomenon that's comparable, just so that you, you know what we're mm -hmm, talking about. Mm -hmm. These actors who you, I told you that my story about you book a TV show and then the phone right. isn't ringing and you're applying at hotels. Right. That was my story. Mm -hmm. So these kids, because they were a part of developing that phenomenon, every single one of them gets a check between four and $6,000 a month. Really? Wow. So that's the kind of money we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And that's just 1% that they split amongst them. So also, let me ask, if they're making 1%, what's the rest of the 99%? There's more than enough money to go oh, around. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is, that's the kind of money. That's sustainability. That's how an actor can pay their rent. That's how they can, a dancer can decide to go back to school mm -hmm. when, they, you know, when the body breaks down. This is life-changing money that we were fighting for. Sure. We had to fight for. Oh, of course. Now, for you, the... There are two big numbers 
in the show, of course, the room where it happens and wait for it, which Lin-Manuel has uh, said um, are among the, the songs he's proudest of helping to put together or putting together. And he, he the guy who gets to sing it is you. So I wonder for you, those two numbers, what makes them special to sing? Is there something in, is there a, a uh, also a lyric or a, a part of them that you really look forward to every night? Well, it's the range. Um, I, I, so I'm, I'm an, a, a performer that has this skill set that I have, and I trained at Carnegie Mellon. You know, I trained at one of the best universities in the in the world to do this thing, and I got out of school, and there's nowhere for me to use it. <laughs> there are no, there were no shows for me to do. Lynn was in very much the same position. Lynn is a guy with that skill set that he has, and there's no shows for him to do. Right. He had to write it for him to do it, which is inspiring. But yeah, I think that what I'm getting to do in Hamilton is um, what a lot of actors of color can do. There's just nowhere for you to do it. So I'm so grateful to Lynn, to the genius and the, the perseverance of this guy who's created a place for us to flex. For us to, you know, you you do the Oscar coverage every year. Mm -hmm. I sometimes I I just I lament at, I won't mention any names, but there are certain actors of color that you see they'll have a season where they're the hot thing, and this is not just a lot of times in America this gets boiled down to a black and white issue. It's not just a black and white issue. It's Asians. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. you know Indian Americans. It's you know anybody who's marginalized mm -hmm. in this country. But you'll see somebody who'll have a hot season, and then you never hear from them again. Right. <laughs> True. There's no more movies for them to do. And so you get to see somebody's brilliance once, and then what? And that's why you've said about, you know, before people get too carried away about the good news from this year, which includes the fact that two most nominated shows are Hamilton and Shuffle Along, which are almost entirely uh, casts of, of people of color. Mm -hmm. Then you've got Eclipse, the first show ever written, directed, and performed by all black women. You've got... Um, you have on your feet. You have allegiance. Yes. You, have, you know, we there were so, other right. shows too. Yeah. But you're saying, or when we spoke before, you said, and I think it's very interesting. Like, don't get, you know, be be happy, but don't get too uh, satisfied because yeah. what's going to matter is what's going to matter is what are we going to do next? Right. 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 <laughs> you know, where does is the is, and I look. I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but is the is the industry going to make room for Philip Asu? Is the in it is the industry going to make room for uh, an Anna who's starring in that beautiful show On Your Feet? You know that girl. I watched that show and I said, um, "What a talent that is!" I um, hope that there are some more shows for her to do mm -hmm. <laughs> after this one. Right. I went to see my good friend Hoon Lee. Who ended up? Who was in King and I? Yes, yeah. that is a he is a monster talent. That is a musical theater talent, and there's about three shows for that man to do. So the I want to see him do Burr. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, I know you were saying Ooh, like excited to see who's gonna who's gonna fill your shoes uh, eventually. Um, but a couple of quick, just sort of yeah. superlative type things. Yeah, sure. Favorite lyric or or portion of a song that you deliver? Oh, that I deliver in Hamilton. Um, um, probably if there's a reason he seems to thrive when so few survive, then God damn it, I'm willing to wait for it. <laughs> That's pretty powerful. Favorite moment in the show, whether you're a part of it or not? Um, I, 
I'm such a fan of um, Philippa Sue, and she just she just so honest and and graceful. Her performance is just it's just like a just a subtle little gem at the center of our show. So I I enjoy that final moment. You know when all the focus goes to Eliza at the ending moments. How you guard against mental and physical burnout what's the mm. I know you have a few secrets that you've been not secrets but like tricks we mm. should say um well you know it's physical burnout you you there's just there's no sort of getting around the maintenance the massages and the chiropractor and the warming up there's just no getting around that kind of stuff but mental burnout I kind of think that you're you're either built for this kind of work or you're not and I I have a curiosity in my you know, my imagination is such that I, I'm constantly, I'm constantly sort of interested in the inner workings of, of this thing and how we can make it different and, and what makes this moment different from yesterday. We're going to do the show tonight. We haven't done it in two days. And I'm interested in uh, people are coming back from vacation. People are more rested. It's, it's going to feel different today. It felt different on Tony nomination day. It'll feel different the day after Tony's right, right. and six months later. So I'm, I'm that though I'm built for theater in that way. That doesn't bore me. Most, um, the, what's the biggest way that it's that? What's the biggest way that being a part of Hamilton has changed you? Mm, what a great question! It's been so profoundly healing because you come to New York or LA. Most of us, you come with something in your belly. You come, you, you come with the desire to say something, right? And then you're waiting for the opportunity to say it. At Hamilton, eight shows a week, I get to say the thing that I came here to say. And so, if nothing else happens after this show, I got to say the thing that I longed to say. That is, that's healing. And, and just to lay it out, the thing that you that's most important for you to say is that look, anyone can can everyone deserves a shot? No, I think it was I think it's a little more symbolic than that. What I think what I'm just trying to say, there was there was a there was a type of role. Bird didn't exist when I graduated from college. So it's not that I imagined playing Aaron Burr in Hamilton the musical, but there was there was something there was a there was a kind of evening that I wanted to be a part of, and it was connected to rent. It was connected to spirituality. It was connected to that kind of truth that Hamilton puts me in the seat of. The show puts me in the seat of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. There was just, I had an idea of the kind of work I wanted to do. I've said this before too, that Hamilton has given me the opportunity to be the kind of artist that has always inspired me. I never had the chance to be this guy before. That's what I mean. Last two things yeah. are just, what do you think Lynn hopes people will take away from Hamilton? What do you hope people will take away from Hamilton in terms of, you know, how, are they, how they think or behave differently when they leave? Mm. Two things. I hope that it will expand all of our minds on what we are, what we can achieve because when you see the show i think there there are many things that you're aware of at the same time you're aware of how expansive and how great the lives 
that these these men and women these men and women that we're portraying you 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 are aware of how much they accomplished in their lifetime and so it asks you what are you accomplishing in your lifetime you're also aware you're acutely aware of Lynn's sort of staggering accomplishment this guy wrote the whole thing good grief <laughs> and then I think you're also aware you're seeing these performance you're seeing these performers and these performances this kind of connection and this kind of um explosiveness that's inspiring to you so I so I I hope that it's just an evening of inspiration that after which you leave and you want to pick up a pen and start writing writing or you want to be better in your life because we are certainly trying to be the best that we can be in this moment in time absolutely and the final thing is just what is your own uh future plans or what are your own future plans for uh, your involvement with Hamilton, and how does one follow Hamilton? I mean, it's uh, not to say that you can't do a million other great things, but it's is that something that you you think about, um, you know, for a time when there's somebody else playing Aaron Burr? What a great question. I, I think that you, for me anyway, um, I am in no way going to try to spend my life competing with Hamilton. This is a perfect jewel of an experience this is it's been perfection in every way it lives in a chamber of my heart alone and so if there's no other I don't expect there to be another Hamilton I think what it does for me though is that it raises the bar and it 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 raises the bar of the kind of rooms I would like to be in. I might never be in something as successful as Hamilton again, but I can walk towards the things that make me feel this way. I can walk towards the things that I love. Um, music is like that for me. We're gonna, you know, we were, we're gonna re-release our first album, and I signed a deal with BMG and S Curve, so I get to create exactly the kind of little projects that I that I want to create. So I'm looking forward to that. There, it's also opened so many doors, Scott. It's just opened. There's, it's a magic key, you know. Hamilton. There's really not a door in this business that this show doesn't open up. But I will. I tell you what. I will not be sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> well, we're gonna have the outro music be a snippet of your new album, which people should go out and cool. and get. And can't thank you enough for this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Drift by my window, falling leaves of red and gold. I see your lips, the summer kisses, sunburned hands I used to hold since you went away.